Chapter Eight of Armageddon, twenty four nineteen A.D. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. Armageddon, twenty four nineteen A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. Chapter Eight, The Han City. This conversation set me thinking. All the Han electrophone intercommunication had been an open record to the Americans for a good many years, and the Hans were just finding it out. For centuries they had not regarded us as any sort of a menace. Unquestionably, it had never occurred to them to secrete their own records. Somewhere in New York, or Barflow, or possibly in Low Tan itself, the record of this traitorous transaction would be more or less openly filed. If we could only get at it, I wondered if a raid might not be possible. Bill Hearn and I talked it over with our Han Affairs boss and his experts. There ensued several days of research in which the Han records of the entire decade were scanned and analyzed. In the end, they picked out a mass of detail and fitted it together into a very definite picture of the great central filing office of the Hans in New York, where the entire mass of official records was kept, constantly available for instant projectoscoping to any of the city's offices and of the system by which the information was filed. The attempt began to look feasible, though Hart instantly turned the idea down when I first presented it to him. It was unthinkable, he said, sheer suicide, but in the end I persuaded him. I will need, I said, Blash, who is thoroughly familiar with the Han library system, Bert Gaunt, who for years has specialized on their military offices, Bill Barker, the ray specialist, and the best swooper pilot we have. Swoopers are one-man and two-man ships developed by the Americans with skeleton backbones of inertron during the war painted green for invisibility against the green forests below, and bellies of clear ultron. "'That will be Mort Gibbons,' said Hart. "'We've only got three swoopers left, Tony. But I'll risk one of them, if you and the others will voluntarily risk your existences. But mind, I won't urge or order one of you to go. I'll spread the word to every plant boss at once to give you anything and everything you need in the way of equipment.' When I told Wilma of the plan, I expected her to raise violent and tearful objections, but she didn't. She was made of far sterner stuff than the women of the twentieth century, not that she couldn't weep as copiously or be just as whimsical on occasions, but she wouldn't weep for the same reasons. She just gave me an unfathomable look in which there seemed to be a bit of pride, and eagerly asked for the details. I confess I was somewhat disappointed that she could so courageously risk my loss, even though I was amazed at her fortitude. But later I was to learn how little I knew her then. We were ready to slide off at dawn the next morning. I had kissed Wilma goodbye at our camp, and after a final conference over our plans, we boarded our craft and gently glided away over the treetops on a course which, after crossing three routes of the Han ships, would take us out over the Atlantic, off the Jersey coast, whence we could come upon New York from the ocean. Twice we had to nose down and lie motionless on the ground near a route while Han ships passed. Those were tense moments. 
Had the green back of our ship been observed, we would have been disintegrated in a second. But it wasn't. Once over the water, however, we climbed in a great spiral ten miles in diameter until our altimeter registered ten miles. Here Gibbon shut off his rocket motor, and we floated far above the level of the Atlantic liners, whose course was well to the north of us, anyhow, and waited for nightfall. Then Gibbons turned from his control long enough to grin at me. "'I have a surprise for you, Tony,' he said, throwing back the lid of what I supposed was a big supply case. And with a sigh of relief, Wilma stepped out of the case. "'If you go into zero, a common expression of the day for being annihilated by the disintegrator ray, you don't think I'm going to let you go alone, do you, Tony? I couldn't believe my ears last night when you spoke of going without me, till I realize that you are still five hundred years behind the times in a lot of ways. Don't you know, dear heart, that you offered me the greatest insult a husband could give a wife? You didn't, of course. The others, it seemed, had all been in on the secret, and now they would have kidded me unmercifully, except that Wilma's eyes blazed dangerously. At nightfall we maneuvered to a position directly over the city. This took some time and calculation on the part of Bill Barker, who explained to me that he had to determine our point by ultronic bearings. The slightest resort to an electronic instrument he feared might be detected by our enemy's locators. In fact, we did not dare bring our swooper any lower than five miles, for fear that its capacity might be reflected in their instruments. Finally, however, he succeeded in locating above the central tower of the city. If my calculations are as much as ten feet off, he remarked with confidence, I'll eat the tower. Now, the rest is up to you, Mort. See what you can do to hold her steady. No, here, watch this indicator, the red beam, not the green one. See, if you keep it exactly centered on the needle, you're okay. The width of the beam represents seventeen feet. The tower platform is fifty feet square, so we've got a good margin to work on. For several moments we watched as Gibbons bent over his levers, constantly adjusting them with deft touches of his fingers. After a bit of wavering, the beam remained centered on the needle. Now, I said, let's drop. I opened the trap and looked down, but quickly shut it again when I felt the air rushing out of the ship into the rarefied atmosphere in a torrent. Gibbons literally yelled a protest from his instrument board. I forgot, I mumbled. Silly of me. Of course, we'll have to drop out of compartment. The compartment to which I referred was similar to those in some of the twentieth-century submarines. We all entered it. There's barely room for us to stand shoulder to shoulder. With some struggles we got into our special air helmets and adjusted the pressure. At our signal Gibbons exhausted the air in the compartment, pumping it into the body of the ship, and as the little signal light flashed, Wilma threw open the hatch. Setting the Ultron wire reel, I climbed through and began to slide down gently. We all had our belts on, of course, adjusted to a weight balance of but a few ounces, and the five-mile reel of Ultron wire that was to be our guide was of gossamer fineness, though anyway I believe it would have lifted the full weight of the five of us, so strong and tough was this invisible metal. As an extra precaution, since the wire was of the purest metal and therefore totally invisible even in daylight, we all had our belts hooked on small rings that slid down the wire. I went down with the end of the wire. Wilma followed a few feet above me, then Barker, Gaunt, and Blash. Gibbons, of course, stayed behind to hold the ship in position and control the paying out of the line. 
We all had our ultraphones in place inside our air helmets, and so could converse with one another and with Gibbons. But at Wilma's suggestion, although we would like to have let the big boss listen in, we kept them adjusted to short-range work, for fear that those who had been clearing with the Hans, and against whom we were on a raid for evidence, might also pick up our conversations. We had no fear that the Hans would hear us. In fact, we had the added advantage that, even after we landed, we could converse freely without danger of their hearing our voices through our air helmets. For a while I could see nothing below but utter darkness. Then I realized from the feel of the air, as much as from anything, that we were sinking through a cloud layer. We passed through two more cloud layers before anything was visible to us. Then there came under my gaze, about two miles below, one of the most beautiful sights I have ever seen, the soft yet brilliant radiance of the great Han city of New York. Every foot of its structural member seemed to glow with wonderful incandescence, tower piled upon tower, and all built on the vast base mass of the city, which, so I had been told, sheared upward from the surface of the rivers to a height of seven hundred and twenty-eight levels. The city, I noticed with some surprise, did not cover anything like the same area as the New York of the twentieth century. It occupied, as a matter of fact, only the lower half of Manhattan Island, with one section straddling the East River and spreading out sufficiently over what had once been Brooklyn to provide berths for the great liners and other aircraft. Straight beneath my feet was a tiny dark patch. It seemed the only spot in the entire city that was not aflame with radiance. This was the central tower, in the top floors of which were housed the vast library of record files and the main projectoscope plant. "'You can shoot the wire now,' I ultraphoned Gibbons, and let go the little weighted knob. It dropped like a plummet, and we followed with considerable speed, but breaking our descent with gloved hands sufficiently to see whether the knob— on which a faint light glowed as a signal for ourselves, might be observed by any Han guard or night prowler. Apparently it was not. And again we shot down with accelerated speed. We landed on the roof of the tower without any mishap, and fortunately for our plan, in darkness. Since there was nothing above it on which it should have been worth while to shed illumination, or from which there was any need to observe it, the Hans had neglected to light the tower roof, or indeed to occupy it at all. This was the reason we had selected it as our landing place. As soon as Gibbons had our word, he extinguished the knob light, and the knob as well as the wire became totally invisible. At our ultraphone word, he would light it again. No gunplay now, I warned. Swords only, and then only if absolutely necessary. Closely bunched, and treading as lightly as only in our tan-belted people could, we made our way cautiously through a door and down an inclined plane to the floor below, where Gaunt and Blash assured us the military offices were located. Twice Barker cautioned us to stop, as we were about to pass in front of mirror-like windows in the passage wall, and flattening ourselves to the floor, we crawled past them. Projectoscopes, he said, probably on automatic record only at this time of night. Still, we don't want to leave any records for them to study after we're gone. "'Were you ever here before?' I asked. "'No,' he replied, "'but I haven't been studying their electrophone communications for seven years "'without being able to recognize these machines when I run across them.'" End of Chapter 8 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com